Welcome to the Sparked Podcast, a place to keep your spark bright. Here I've brought together my most powerful tips from the last decade plus partnering with small businesses on all things leadership, mindset, people and culture. Here my approach combines intuitive psychology, strategy, neuroscience and results-based coaching to unlock your highest potential. Step into your power and truly own your role as a leader so that you can spread the positive impacts of your purpose-led work everywhere. My name is Emma Campbell. I'm a mindset and performance coach for purpose-led leaders. I'm a mama to two cheeky little munchkins. I'm a wine appreciator, nature-obsessed, stubbornly optimistic child at heart, and I'm here to inspire belief in what's possible for you because it is all so possible. I hope that this podcast leaves you feeling lighter, more inspired, and more ready than ever to go out there and take actions on your big dreams and vision. I can't wait to dig in. See you in the podcast. Hello, hello, hello. So lovely to be here. So excited to share this podcast episode with you all about how your childhood influences your leadership. Uh, how your childhood conditioning, your parenting, how you were brought up impacts who you are today and how you show up as a leader and, you know, what your style is and, um, you know, your, how that impacts your strengths and your unique gifts and, um, you know, also the other side of the coin, how, how it can lead to certain blind spots in how you show up and, you know, the areas that you may want to work on in the future. I don't like to use the word weaknesses, but um, let's just call them your the opposite of your strengths. <laughs> the areas that you might want to work on. It's um it's been a really interesting topic which has come up in so many conversations lately with clients and within my mastermind with friends and you know when you when you start to dig into this some of the questions that can come up for people and a lot of a lot of the resistance that I hear, particularly people who may <laughs> have not done a lot of therapy in the in the past, which is um, amazing. It's so, so cool that you haven't felt like you've needed therapy. I've I've done a lot of therapy in my time, um, like seen seen lots of psychologists for anxiety that I've struggled with in the past that I'm now really good with. Um, but that gave me a bit of a hard time, uh, yeah, about five or six years ago. And, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't spend much time thinking about your childhood and how it could have an impact on you today, it totally makes sense that your initial reaction is, oh, my childhood, like, doesn't really have much of an impact on who I am today. You know, I had a good, I had a good childhood, you know, nothing, nothing special, um, nothing different. Um, and yeah, I, I so, so hear that. And I so resonate with that. And I was exactly the same when I first started psychology. And, um, when I first started seeing a psychologist and going to therapy, um, that was my exact first statement is I had a bloody incredible childhood. I was super happy and, um, you know, it was super positive and that is 100% still true. The the thing that I want to talk about today is how the conscious and unconscious ways that we were either parented or the conscious or unconscious, um, you know, messages that we grew up with or that we um, absorbed from the people around us, the caregivers around us, how big an impact that had on us as we grow up. Because the first seven-ish years of our life, we are living primarily in our subconscious brains, which means that we don't you know, we don't have that conscious, analytical, rational processing brain on full ball yet. It's um, we don't have a big filter for what seems right or wrong or true for us um, in the first seven years of life. So almost everything that we hear 
um, and receive gets digested almost immediately and absorbed into the subconscious brain and taken as true, taken as fact. And so whoever we spent the most time with growing up in the first seven years of our life had a really, really big impact on how we see the world and our beliefs in life and what we think to be true and normal and okay and, you know, how we respond to people and events and the world around us. So that's a little bit about what I want to talk about today because we all have this deeply unconscious conditioning uh, within us, you know, within that subconscious brain that we're relatively unaware of until someone shines a light on it for us or until we do a personality survey, um, which is what I'm going to talk a little bit about today, um, or until, you know, we really start to do some of the deep, the deep inner work for ourselves. If we're not going through processes and rituals to help us personally uncover the unconscious conditioning um, that's inherent within our own brains, then we tend to be relatively unaware of it because it is unconscious, which makes total sense, right? I think I remember hearing this awesome um, analogy of, you know, a fish within water. It's like a fish doesn't know that it's in water until it's out of the water, right? Because it's grown up in that water. It's like the water doesn't exist for it because it doesn't know anything different. So it's only when that fish is taken out of water that it goes, oh gosh. So it's only when it's given that perspective, um, when it's shown something different and shown a different reality, a different perspective, that it can then see the reality that it was in before it was taken out of water. If does that make sense? So for example, if you've grown up with a family or parents with a certain way of living or believing, um, you know, certain beliefs about the world, whether it's about money or whether it's about people or whether it's about work and, you know, you've got to work hard for a living and you've got to go to uni or, um, whatever those beliefs were that you grew up with um, in your family, then as you, you know, as you enter the world and you meet other families um, or you meet other people and you realise that there's so many other ways of living or so many other beliefs about work um, or about money or about people and you realise that, you know, not everyone in the world has to work hard really, really hard for a living and that some people find ease and flow uh, with their work and that they, you know, find true joy and energy and love and passion for their work and that they can make money, you know, doing their passion. And you, and it's only in these moments of recognizing different belief systems to your own, which is usually starts to happen only, you know, around kind of uh maybe like early teenagerhood maybe like between 12 and 19 is when you first start to like really get a grasp of how different families and different people have different belief systems and that there isn't just one truth that there's different truths um for different families it's like it's those moments that you recognize how your childhood and what you grew up with really does impact you so strongly. I mean, like when you think about it, where else are you going to get your beliefs about the world from than with those that you spent your time growing up with? And, you know, usually it's, it's, a, it's a one or two caregivers. It's the people that gave you a sense of safety, a sense of love, a sense of belonging, a sense of um, security. It's whoever those people were for you in your life that typically had the biggest impact, whether whether conscious or not, <laughs> on who you are today and how you think and how you see the world and how you see yourself. And what I want to talk a little bit about today is how we all have unique strengths. We all have 
you know, unique parts of our personality and, you know, superpowers and, and unique gifts about ourselves, as well as blind spots. So blind spots meaning, you know, the opposite, I guess, of your strengths, because there's always two sides to every coin, you know, a strength in one area sometimes means a weakness in another, you know, if you're a real extrovert with all the passion and energy and enthusiasm and loud voice um, in the world, um, while that might seem like a real strength in one way, sometimes it means it's a weakness in another because that may mean someone who's who's not that great at listening and not that great at staying still and being quiet and being calm and being able to you know really sit with the stillness that might be required to work with introverts or whatever so you know there's no right or wrong strength but um everyone's going to have strengths and everyone's going to have two sides to every coin and you know underlying those strengths and underlying those behaviors and actions are things deeper within us that drive us you know our core desires in life our our soul desires you know i would go so far as to say as well as our fears and you know some unconscious motivations the things that we you know most most want and that light us up and that drive us you know these are all unique to us and many of them are relatively unconscious until now (laughs) so one of my favorite tools in the whole wide world for helping unpack and discover some of the more unconscious parts of our personality in terms of our motivation and our strengths and you know our blind spots is a tool which is called Enneagram and I've been studying the 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 research and the work from the Enneagram Institute which is like a a psyche modeling and personality profiling tool for over a decade now and it is by far my most favorite tool for self-discovery for transformation, for self-understanding and for deeper, deeper self-realization that can really um, expediate the process of uncovering what's going on for you. Um, So you could sit in therapy for a really long time or something like Enneagram is really awesome at just getting to the core of you know, the crux of who you are and what you're all about and what you're really good at and what's holding you back. Um, I actually rolled out a workshop the other day with a small, um, you know, 30 person healthcare business. I think they're turning over about eight figures at the moment. And um, the CEO, who is like one of the most advanced personal development pros that I've ever met, (laughs) he's been deep in the self-development world for over 30 years now, said M that was the best workshop. That was truly eye-opening and mind-blowing. And, you know, it's, it's, and and everyone else in the workshop was just sending through very, very similar feedback, which is always a joy to hear. And so, you know, so heartwarming to know that it's really hit home. And that's the sort of feedback that I hear a lot from these sort of Enneagram workshops, because this work goes deep. And it's deeper than like Myers-Briggs, it's deeper than DISC and maybe some of those other personality profiling tools you've done. Because as I said before, it reveals your unconscious, your unconscious deep desires and fears. And your unconscious brain is the vast majority of your brain. I forget the specific stat, but it's something like 90% of your brain capacity is lying in your unconscious brain. It's like, that's the piece that takes, you don't really know what's going on, but it's the biggest piece of your brain that does most of the the quick thinking for you. So why I wanna talk about this today is because I'm so obsessed with this Enneagram tool, (laughs) I I just had to create a quiz for myself for free 
that is a version of the Enneagram, which is made specifically for leaders. So the general Enneagram just kind of tells anyone generally some of their um, their leadership or so, some of their personality uh, strengths and styles. Uh, but the, the quiz that I have created is one that is completely for free. It takes three minutes and it reveals your personal leadership style based on the research behind the Enneagram Institute. So I'm going to drop the link in the podcast show notes below. And what I would recommend is that if you're listening to this podcast now, <laughs> which I assume you are, if you're hearing this message, I, I would just pause it for a second, jump onto the link, take the three minute survey so that as you listen to the rest of this podcast, you can actually listen in with knowing what your leadership style is, because I'm going to go through the nine different types of leaders and the nine different types of leadership styles. Um, because essentially what, what you'll get is when you complete the quiz, you'll get classified as a number um, between one and nine. And these different numbers can be thought of as styles. They can be thought of as motivators. Um, and I, I feel like they can also be thought of as needs. So they're things that you not only want in your life, but that you need in your life to be at your best, to be firing on all cylinders, to be your most lit up, full, fullest expression of who you are. They're the things that you desire and that you rely on and that you crave in order to feel good and fulfilled and like you. So yeah, going through the survey, it'll tell you your strengths, your unique gifts, your superpowers, your leadership style, and it will tell you your blind spots. So those things that you don't even know that you're, that you're doing and that could be, um, you know, impacting you and holding you back. So if you haven't done that yet, just jump on, pause it, pause the podcast now and jump in because I'm about to go through the nine different styles of leadership. All right. So type number one. So you, if you're a type number one, which I have called the idealist, there's a, there's a few different ways that you could describe the type one there. You could either call them a, an idealist, which is the title I like the most. You could call them a moral perfectionist. You could call them a, like a high standard setting queen or king <laughs> or a reformer. But essentially the type one, if you're a type one, you are principled, you are purposeful, you are self-controlled and you are relatively perfectionistic. You have got a really high standards for yourself and really high standards for others. If you're a type one, you're probably the sort of person who dislikes any form of sloppiness or errors and you've got a really really strong moral compass you like you know what good looks like you know you know what the standard or the bar could look like and you want to hold yourself to that as well as hold others to that type two so type twos oh my gosh almost all my friends are type twos <laughs> as well as my husband. <laughs> so the type two is what I call the collaborator leader. So the type two can also be thought of as an empath. You can be thought of as the helper, the giver, the advisor, the mentor. Essentially type twos are caring, they're generous, typically relatively people pleasing. They dis tend to dislike a lot of solitude like they just love people and being around people and they don't like anything which is really impersonal and lacking in any sort of like heart or care or emotion type twos tend to really be attracted to like service and care careers so you'll often find twos as coaches or teachers or psychologists um, nurses, like anything in that caring profession. And they they're just absolutely incredible at making personal connections in life. Type three. So I am a, I personally am a type three. So the three is also known as the achiever leader. 
So type threes can also be thought of as uh, sometimes a bit competitive and very driven, um, really goal goal driven. <laughs> sometimes I can be a bit like a dog with a bone when I've got a goal and just like, you know, complete focus on, you know, everything that will get me towards that outcome or that goal. Type threes are usually very adaptable, like really focused on self-development um love efficiency and relatively image conscious as well they um you know get really triggered and dislike anything to do with inefficiency or ineffectiveness and also find it tricky to any anyone or anything that has a lack of ambition um type threes are really attracted to success and recognition and um, yeah i can definitely acknowledge and validate a lot of that there so type fours are called the innovators so they're the innovative leader they can also be thought of as the individualist or the creative and they are perceptive they are innovative there's can sometimes be a bit secretive and sometimes be a bit detached they dislike any intrusions on their time and space and they're really attracted to like depth and meaning. Oh, I'm so sorry. I totally just read out part of the wrong, <laughs> part of the wrong Enneagram. Apologies there. So a type four is the individualist or an innovator and they are intuitive. They are expressive. They are individualistic and can sometimes be a little bit temperamental. So um, type fours are usually quite emotionally driven um, and can sometimes have a little bit of trouble with moodiness. They do not like any form of uniformity and bureaucracy and regulation. They're really attracted to creativity and putting their personal mark on things. So type five, which is what I was reading out before, apologies for that, is called the expert. So the expert leader, also known as the investigator. So they are really perceptive, innovative, and can sometimes be a little bit like secretive and detached with the information and the knowledge that they love to spend their time researching and absorbing. They do not like intrusions on their time and space. They like their own space and they're really attracted to depth and learning. Like they love knowledge, they love analyzing and they really love understanding the heart of an issue. Hence their, their real strength there in leadership is being the expert on particular topics. So the type six is what I'm calling the protector here. So they can also be known as the loyalist. So super loyal, really have a real um, awareness for, you know, protecting others. They're really, really committed. They're super responsible. They can sometimes be a little bit anxious and suspicious of others. And they love predictability. So the opposite side to that is they do not like surprises and unpredictability and rapid, rapid change. And they can sometimes be attracted to quite, you know, clear structures and processes and planning. The type seven is called the enthusiast. So this is also a really, really strong one for me when I do this survey. So the type seven being the enthusiast can also be known as the visionary. Um, they are super spontaneous, really versatile, quite talkative and can sometimes be quite scattered. <laughs> yep, definitely admit to that. They do not like limitations and routines. They are addicted to freedom and love having fun and like having lots of joy in their lives. They're really attracted to new things. So like new possibilities and um, anything which brings them excitement. The type number eight is the challenger. So their leadership style is really self-confident. A lot of the organizations that I roll out Enneagram with, I find that 99% of their CEOs are eights. So they're really decisive. 
they've got strong willpower and they're comfortable with confrontation. So they're quite happy sharing their thoughts and opinions, even if it means that it might not be like the perfect opinion or it might upset someone else. They dislike indecisiveness and indirectness, and they're really attracted to strength and strategic action. The type nine is called the peacemaker. So this is like the peacemaker leader who's really good at getting people on the same page. Um, Mediation. So is really good at mediating lots of different perspectives to come together to find a shared outcome. And nines are usually very calm. They're reassuring. They're very agreeable and complacent. They do not like tension and conflict, and they're usually attracted to harmony and stability. So in terms of the the strengths of each of those types, number one, so the idealist, the, the unique genius or the unique gift that they bring to their leadership and how they really get things done is by leading by example and setting a really high standard. So that is the real strength of the one. The strength of of a two leader, the collaborator, is their ability to lead and find consensus and buy-in through collaboration and encouragement. The type three, which is the achiever, they their real strength is their ability to lead through goal setting vision setting plans and results the type number four so the innovator they are incredible at leading through intuition and leading by creating a vision and connection with others the type number five has so the expert they are incredible at leading by bringing together the right research, knowledge, and planning, and being a real source of expert wisdom. The type number six is incredible at leading through problem solving and building that sense of safety through their loyalist type qualities. The type number seven is the enthusiast, and their real, real strength is their ability to lead by vision, so setting a vision through driving excitement for new ideas and engaging others. The type number eight, the challenger, has a real strength in leading through strategy, big action, and creating a sense of certainty, which can be really, really attractive to team members. And lucky last but not least, the type number nine, leads through mediation and consensus. Type nines are incredible at bringing a sense of peace and unity and calm to a whole heap of diverse um, diverse perspectives. So I, I hope that that was really helpful for you, understanding the strengths that your, your leadership style brings. Um, when you complete the leadership style survey, you'll actually get a free ebook, which will summarize a lot of what I'm talking today, um, minus the childhood conditioning piece. So that's why I wanted to go through this piece right now to give you a little bit of a sense of how that plays a part. So when I go through this, I just want to preface this with saying that, you know, the messaging that we heard as children and the the observations that we made and, you know, the essence of, of what we interpreted as kids is, is basically what has made us, what has made our, our surface level personality. So as I go through these different areas, you know, just keeping in mind that it may have been messages that you heard, or it might have just been what you unconsciously sensed was the right thing to do to get approval or attention or love or safety in your family. Because our personality is shaped by our childhood experiences. And, you know, whether we're born with 
that personality already in place, it's really tricky to verify. Um, but I, I believe it's a mix between nurture and nature, as most things are. And I think as any mother or father knows, like children emerge into the world with different personalities that are just there, right? It's I can definitely say my two little ones, like Hazy and Oscar. Oscar is like a little rocket firecracker of energy and Hazy is a koala bear. And there is just no ifs or buts about it. They were born exactly like that. And so that's what I would call the difference between temperament and your personality. So temperament being something that is more innate that you're, you're born with. It's like your underlying energy, your underlying nature, your underlying emotional sort of style of responding to the world. And what I'm talking more so about here is your personality, um, which is a little bit like a level on top of that. It's a little bit more conditioned. It's still relative, relatively unconscious, but it's a bit more learnt. There's more nurture in it. So I am going to talk about the childhood and how childhood can shape each one of the types of leadership. So for an Enneagram one, the one child was typically one who was required to take on a bit of responsibility quite early on in life. So they were usually pressured to do something correctly or perfectly uh, before they felt like they were ready, whether it was physically or psychologically. There was just that sense of they didn't feel ready before having to do certain things, whether it was like potty training or like having to be the family spokesperson. They found or they learnt the message through childhood, whether it was said verbally or whether it was just picked up on, like sensed, they they found that being good was defined by an external authority who regularly informed them that they were doing something the right way. So whether that was a parent or something like that. And they they may have got the sense that they were critic they were um it was you know they were criticized a little bit as kids um and so they actively tried to avoid being criticized and seen as bad um by really internalizing that critical voice for themselves so they kind of created their own critical voice and used it to self-monitor their own behavior as a way to protect themselves, protect outside people from criticizing them. And they sort of discovered that being faultless could earn them positive reassurance and acceptance. So that's a little bit about the one, the idealist and how their childhood has shaped them into the leader and the style that they are today. The Enneagram, or sorry, the, the, the type two is the child that realized quite early on in life that to stay connected to the people that they loved, they often had to choose between, or they felt like they had to choose between their own needs and another person's needs. And often they chose the other person. So the two child may have had to perhaps feel like they had to take care of a get caregiver or were simply told, you know, whether verbally or, or not verbally, that they were too needy. <laughs> so twos recall repeatedly hearing the message that they were either too much, like too sensitive, too needy, too emotional, and that this often reinforced their sense that their needs were overwhelming for others. So what this, the impact of this is that they often suppress their own needs and emotions in order to be liked. Instead, they became experts at sensing others' needs and feeling like others' needs were more worthy of attention than their own and working out how they could meet others' needs. Then as they grow up, they gain approval 
and affection by being that likable person and, you know, being able to preempt needs and selectively supporting the people they want to reciprocate love and support in return. So that's a little bit about what the childhood messaging or um, childhood may have looked like to create a real collaborating leadership style, the two. So the Enneagram 3 usually had well-intentioned parents who raised them and praised them for their accomplishments. Um, So for what they did and what they achieved rather than for who they were at their core, who they were without those achievements. So the three usually started, you know, performing and um, trying to get really good at things and find ways to stand out and get notice, you know, such as being the family sporting champion or the performer or, or some sort of achiever. One way or another, the three child learns that the path to love and appreciation is through doing and action. And so they become superhuman doers, achieving whatever goals they set for themselves and and trying to be really impressive in the eyes of others, thinking that that's the path to love and acceptance. The Enneagram 4 is a really interesting one. So typically the four children are quite sensitive to some form of loss. So the four child may have experienced an actual or a perceived loss of some form of love early on in life. And sadly, they blame themselves for it. So it might be like another sibling came along or another life event simply made the parent less available or perhaps completely unavailable. And the four child made sense of this abandonment or deprivation by convincing themselves that they somehow caused it Um, and I guess that gave them a way of like feeling in control of the situation. They tried really early on to accept, they felt really like out of place in their family. Um, They tried to accept what made them different and to notice it and evaluate and celebrate it as a bit of a coping mechanism that helped them deal with those feelings of rejection. Um, and which led to a trajectory of feeling kind of unusual and different and out of touch with ordinary people. So the Enneagram 5, for whatever reason, the 5's caregiver was somehow not super responsive to their needs and the 5 child felt neglected. They didn't feel often like they got enough of what they needed uh, to be self-sufficient. Like learn, they had, they learned that to get by on less allowed them to like, all that they were able to like retreat into their heads a bit and protect whatever their meager resources were. Like often fives experienced a sense of kind of like invasion or intrusion And often they had to deal with other people's emotional drama or relationships that they felt were just a bit too intense, which often caused them to withdraw and they learnt to withdraw either emotionally or physically or whatever by detaching from feelings and people. So fives often sought refuge in the private space of their intellect. So fives are usually very intellectual and after they realized that they could not get their needs needs met through force or um, you know any form of seduction so when relationships feel like a threat to their safety the five retreats into their intellect um, as a way to protect themselves so that's how that expert um, intellectual really comes about The six child had a bit of a problem with authority (laughs) and was often left feeling unprotected by the very person who was meant to protect them. The caregiver may have been unpredictable, unreliable or undependable and 
perhaps even for a little time in life may have seemed a little bit dangerous on a daily basis. So what that led to was the six concluding that the world must be that way too. Whether it was like an unpredictable caregiver, like they may have been um, alcoholic or violent or have some mental health challenges. Um, The six was raised by a parent who was kind of overly strict with constantly shifting expectations or like punishments that just didn't make sense. Given the unpredictable nature of their environment, the six child learned to be constantly on the lookout for small cues that signaled the presence of danger or threat. They became really skilled at anticipating what was going to happen next so that they could be prepared for danger or challenges. So being able to predict when something scary or bad might happen was their way of staying safe and gave the sick child, I guess, that inner sense of security. The Enneagram 7 was... I mean, well, the Enneagram at seven adult may is and is likely to remember their childhood as being quite rosy, fun or idyllic, (laughs) which I'm laughing at that sentence because that is exactly what I just said to you right at the start of this podcast. And I am a seven. Um, But while they might remember it as being rosy, fun or idyllic, that's how they want to remember it, because that's how sevens are sort of wired. They often developed this unconscious message as they were growing up that they needed to nurture themselves because they started to learn that nobody else would do it as adequately as what they wanted. So they would often seek out distractions, activities, possibilities and objects that would excite their senses and keep them busy to distract themselves from any sort of loneliness or inadequacy lurking underneath. You know, many sevens report an event in childhood that shook them out of their playful reverie, where they realized how ill-equipped to face the challenges of life that they really were. And this experience of safety comes in the form of positivity. So they aim to only feel positive feelings and aim to reframe any negatives in a good light. They focus on whatever feels good to avoid any form of suffering, whether from pain, negative feelings or any dark experiences. So sevens are particularly sensitive to anything painful or negative. The Enneagram 8 child had to grow up fast. So to them, home was a battleground where conflict or combat were necessary to survive. Perhaps because of violence, neglect, or simply being the youngest or the smallest child in a big family, the eight child saw the need to adopt a tough persona. Whether that was just to be stronger or more powerful or protective of others, they they felt like they had to let go of their innocence so that they could get by in a world that did not provide love or care or that nurturing protection to the weak. The eight child saw the world as kind of like divided into the weak or the strong, and they vowed never to be powerless, vulnerable or alone ever again. So the eights can have a a real tough time being vulnerable and feel a sense of needing to be strong always, regardless of what's going on for them. The nine child often during childhood felt overlooked, not heard or not included. They may have perhaps been a middle or a younger child um, that was unable to get the attention that they needed, or they might've felt like a quiet voice whose opinion kind of got lost in a sea of louder or more forceful voices. So what they learnt was to go along, to get along and found ways to blend in and keep the peace and avoid getting upset by wanting what others wanted. They learned to remain calm when what they wanted was dismissed and simply allowed others to decide for them. They became the easygoing, 
friendly child who would accommodate the needs of the family as a way to feel a sense of belongingness or connectedness. And in a family where there was often for nines, it was frequent conflict or turmoil at home, or it felt like frequent conflict or turmoil at home for the nine, they learned to get really good at tuning out the problems and numbing themselves to the conflict inside. <laughs> so we went pretty deep there. I hope that you got some good little nuggets of insight and wisdom there. Childhood plays a big part in who you are today, right? And I feel like one of the questions that comes up a lot after learning a bit about all of this stuff is the question of can you change your personality? And that question in itself is a question that I am so transfixed by. And it's not something that I'm going to dig into in a lot of depth right now. I think that's a question for another podcast is whether you can change your personality. In short, I'm an optimist. I'm a seven. So I believe yes. I believe and I, and I believe in growth. I believe that you can evolve and shift your belief system and your ways over time with like super conscious work and by surrounding yourself with the right people. The research shows like in psychology that every 10 years or so your personality can change. Um, and I reckon it could be even less time than that, depending on how much conscious work you're putting into it. For example, um, I've always been a seven. There's no doubt about that. And I don't know if I'll ever change. So the seven is that one that's really, you know, driven towards freedom and enjoying life and being ha happy and flexible and um, doing lots of different things like variety. And yeah, I've always been a seven and I don't believe that will ever change. However, my other really strong driver is a three, which is that achiever. And I used to be a really, really strong three, particularly maybe about a decade ago when I first started in my career. Um, I was super competitive and really focused on winning and achieving at all costs. And like in sporting competitions, I was always really, really competitive um, and quite obsessed with like status and recognition and all of that sort of thing. However, I've recently tested myself again and my three, my achieving three has reduced by quite a significant amount. And what has started to rise through the ranks instead is my nine, which is the peacemaker. Interestingly, so talking about, you know, who you surround yourself with and how they can impact you over time, my hubby is a nine and we've been together for around 14 years now. And I have a good feeling that his peace loving side has definitely rubbed off on me and is probably very much needed. <laughs> and I've heard similar stories from clients who said that their three achieving hubbies have turned them into threes over the last decade, even though they didn't identify with being achievers at all um, before they met. So it's actually a really good quiz to do with your partner. Um, funnily enough, I used to get really frustrated at my, at my hubby for little things um, until he did his, he, until he did the quiz. And I then understood how, like what he was, like what was actually going on for him and like what, what, how he was wired differently and what, what was most important to him and how he's literally motivated by different things. So for example, me being a seven, which is driven by all things new and exciting and fun and all of that, I, and, and me running my own business, which is like creating freedom and um, abundance for me and, you know, flexibility and all those things. I used to feel frustrated that he didn't want to start his own business when I had just started mine. And I remember thinking, how could everyone not want to start their own business? It's the best thing ever. It's so fun. <laughs> and then we did his Enneagram and well, he, we did his quiz. And I realized that he 
yet was not driven in the same ways that I was. He, he had a really strong nine, which is the peacemaker, and a really strong six, which is focused on like safety and security and stability. Um, so they are the things that motivate him and also the things that he needs in order to feel at his best. So funnily enough, the career that he was in and, and is still in is government, which is so perfect for meeting his needs of, you know, peace um, and, and that lack of conflict and that stability and that security. So awesome, awesome quiz to do with your partner. I promise it'll help you understand them at a deeper level. And um, the beautiful impact of doing it is that it can bring that greater sense of understanding, compassion, empathy, and, um, you know, just, yeah, really empathizing with what is going on for your partner rather than judging them, (laughs) which is what I was initially doing. So these are just stories, of course, so not fact, but just, you know, some stories to keep in mind is I'm a big believer that we humans are adaptable, we are agile, we are evolving, and we are growing machines that are never stuck as we are. We can literally transform, I believe, into any person we want to be with time, energy, focus, energy, and and persistence. And I believe that like one of the greatest sources of like depression is the belief that you will be stuck as you are like that forever. So to flip that belief is to flip towards the belief that we can change, we can grow and we can develop into any person that we want to be. The The key is just getting clear on who that person is. So That was a bit of a tangent, but um, I feel like I needed to share that for some reason. (laughs) So when you take your quiz, um, jump on and do it now if you haven't done it. Send it to a friend, send it to your bestie. See if you can guess their number before they do it. It's really, really interesting. I always get them wrong. I think it's such an interesting one to do because it's not predictable. It's not really obvious what what sort of number a person might be. but yeah, when you take your quiz, you'll get a free ebook with a heap of this information in it. Um, and oh my gosh, please share your number with me because I love to hear what you are. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll try and guess what yours is before I open your email. If you send me through an email or a DM um, and see if my guess is right. You know, I could just talk about this stuff all day long. I've studied the ins and the outs of it in so much detail and what I've shared with you today is just skimming the surface on what you can learn through um, through all of this research. So if you want to know more, um, just uh, send me an email or send me a DM on Instagram. Uh, once you complete the quiz, you'll have all my details there ready to go. We can even book in a call and I can give you a free 20 minute debrief to, to help you really understand how your childhood has played a part on your leadership and what that means for you in terms of your growth goals, like what you should be focusing on in order to address your blind spots or address your weaknesses or start to work on some of the gaps um, that may have been present as a result of, yeah, childhood and um, and who you are today. Hope that was uh, helpful. I'm sending you so much love. Um, let me know and share me share with me some feedback if you really enjoyed this podcast episode. I love, love, love to hear from you. Big love. <laughs>